Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the story of Jennifer Alvarez Estrada Glick from Central Texas, who became pregnant three months after the state banned virtually all abortions past six weeks of pregnancy and imposed criminal penalties on doctors carrying them out. Yeni had medical conditions that made pregnancy dangerous, and as the months wore on, became sicker and sicker. Yet she was never given the option of ending the pregnancy to save her life. In July 2022, Yeni and her fetus died. The New Yorker's Stephanie Ataladrid tells Yeni's story in a piece that asks, did an abortion ban cost a young Texas woman her life? We learn more after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Several states with abortion bans say they make exceptions for medical emergencies or when the life of the mother is at risk. Two stories from Texas are a window into what those words actually mean. The recent case of Kate Cox in Dallas, who was denied an abortion by the state Supreme Court, though the pregnancy threatened her health and future fertility. And the lesser-known story of Jennifer Alvarez Estrada Glick from rural Luling, who was never offered the option of a potentially life-saving abortion for fear of running afoul of Texas's abortion ban. Yeni died in 2022. And Stephania Taladrid, in her latest piece for The New Yorker, tells Yeni's story. Stephania joins me now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about Yeni, whom you describe as the nerve center of her family. What do you mean? So Yeni was born in San Luis Potosí, Mexico. Uh, this was in the 1990s. And she moved with her mother to the town of Luling in central Texas when she was three years old. So she was a DACA recipient. And I think it's important to mention just a brief parents on Luling, since I imagine not a lot of your listeners are familiar with the town. Uh, Luling became known in the 20th century because it was discovered to be sitting on oil. And so it attracted a lot of people, including Yeni's families who were lured 
by the promise of black gold. And so in the 1990s, her family moved there and she, she, she lived with her mom and her siblings and her aunt, her grandmother in a very small town in, in, in a very small home in Luling, a tin roofed home. Um, and, and, and she, like many other working class families, started taking care of her siblings for her mother who worked in the kitchen of a Mexican restaurant. And, you know, it was interesting when I traveled to Luling and got to sit down with the family, no matter who you asked, whether it was Yeni's siblings, her mother, her aunt, everyone told me she was a person I could always rely on. You know, she was a person who uh, worried about uh, not missing a mortgage payment. She was a person who worried about her cousin who had a stroke at age 16 uh, and, and made sure that she could apply for disability aid. She was the one who alerted everyone in the family when politicians were stoking, uh, you know, fear against uh, undocumented families. And she was that person. Um, and so that's that's what we what we mean when we call her the brains of her extended family operation, the nerve center. Yeah. In November of 2021, Yeni married her boyfriend, an army reservist named Andrew Glick, and they were pregnant a month later and really excited about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But there are complicating factors. The first that you say she's undocumented. Yeni's also uninsured. She has a difficult financial situation. Do you want to say a little bit more about her work? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something we mentioned in the piece. This was a woman who harbored very, very big dreams. Uh, growing up, she wanted to become a scientist. She wanted to go to college. Uh, her mother told us that she wasn't sure if she wanted to study chemistry or biology, but that was in her mind. And her dreams were to eventually live Luling. She often talked about uh, buying a home in the town of Wimberley, uh, a hill country town about 40 miles west of Luling. And because she was a DACA recipient, her mother told me that she didn't qualify for, for any scholarships after high school because she didn't have a social security number. So eventually those dreams had to be put on pause and she ended up staying in Luling where she trained as a certified nursing aide. And she took a job in a nursing home and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, but um, she wasn't making a lot of money and the difficulty of living in Luling, which is a maternity care desert, and I'm sure you'll, you'll want us to talk about this, is that every time that she needed to see an OBGYN, any, every time that uh, she needed to seek routine care, she had to travel outside of Luling for that. Um, and that obviously uh, put, put a significant strain on her finances. And she did have to get quite a bit of medical care because she had complicated pre-existing medical conditions. Can you tell us about those conditions that she had? Absolutely. So pretty early on when she was in her early 20s, Yeni learned that she had hypertension and diabetes, which were, by the way, two conditions that already ran in her family. Her mother has it, so do her siblings, her aunt, her grandmother. And another complication in her case was her weight. Um, she was about 260 pounds, which is considered class three obesity. And what I, what I think we should mention here, and, and I want to make clear, is that however dangerous these chronic conditions can be for pregnant women, they are also very common. Um, many of the OBGYNs and maternal fetal experts 
that I interviewed and I spoke with throughout my reporting made it clear that they're used to seeing patients like Yanni all the time. And it's no secret that there's an obesity epidemic in our country. You know, high blood pressure happens in one in every 12 to 17 pregnancies, um, according to the CDC. And about 1% to 2% of pregnant women in the country have pre-existing diabetes. But what made things more complicated in Yanni's case was that during the pandemic, she developed pulmonary edema. And that's a condition in which the lungs fill with fluid and it strains the heart and can be fatal. So for all of these reasons, Yenny was considered a high-risk patient, especially during her pregnancy. And as you know from reading the piece, Mina, that is especially dangerous when you live in, in a maternity care desert like Caldwell County. Yeah. So she does start experiencing things like breathing problems and bleeding. And though she would get her care outside of Luling, in those emergencies, you have to go to the Luling emergency room. You have to go to the general hospital there. Tell us about that hospital and how equipped it was to handle patients experiencing problems that were being exacerbated by pregnancy. Right. Um, the first thing I'll mention is that maternity care deserts are not rare in Texas. More than half the counties in the state are sadly unequipped to treat pregnant women like Yenny. That means they lack a single specialist in women's health, whether it's an OBGYN, a nurse, or a midwife. Uh, in Luling, in particular, there's only one general hospital, and it's named after the man who actually found oil in Luling. It's called Ascension Seton Edgar B. Davis. And the hospital's labor and delivery unit closed in the 1990s. There's no OBGYN on site. So that means that for decades, women from Luling have had to travel to places like Kyle, which is a bigger city, 30 miles northwest of Luling, or even Austin, which is 50 miles northwest of town, for routine care, just to see an OBGYN. And again, this is not rare in Texas. Uh, there was a fascinating report from March of Dimes last year that showed that um, in rural areas across Texas, nearly 30% of women live over 30 minutes from a birthing hospital. That's compared to less than 4% of women living in urban areas. So if you're someone like Yenny, who is not going through a normal pregnancy and has all these serious underlying conditions, that makes it even more dangerous for you. So Luling does not have a labor and delivery unit. It has no OB on site. You're saying that maternity care deserts are not rare, yet this hospital is seeing a major surge. You read that by 2022, the number of women giving birth in that Luling ER was surging, and you talked to the employees about why they think that's happening. What do they tell you? What do they think is driving the increase? Right. So that's 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 a really important point to mention. In the, absence, in, in the absence of an OBGYN, a lot of pregnant women in town just end up going to the ER, which I think I didn't mention this before, but it has four beds and, and one doctor. Uh, and employees at the hospital I spoke with started seeing the search that you're referring to uh, in the number of women who were coming in uh, to be seen. By, by a doctor, the number of pregnant women. And they warned them, you know, this is not the place you want to be, not just because there's not an OBGYN on site, but also because 
there isn't an anesthesiologist to 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 numb your pain with an epidural and much less a maternal fetal expert uh you know a variety of factors might have led to that increase in deliveries but something that came up in every single conversation that i had was sb8 the six-week uh ban that took effect in texas in september of 2021 and as a matter of fact johns hopkins looked into this and they found that as a result of sb8 texas among other states had experienced an increase in deliveries so you know we don't have the full data yet but based on anecdotal evidence from the staff members at the hospital it seems like nothing else has changed in the span of these two last years except for the law so essentially the state has now forced more pregnant people to have babies when it is not equipped to provide them with the maternal care that they need and potentially to be able to deliver those babies safely, it sounds like what you're describing. Exactly, exactly. And can you just say a little bit more, we're coming up on a break, about what SB8 did in addition to banning abortions after six weeks when most, when most women don't know they're even pregnant? Absolutely. Um, I would say the biggest thing is, is it created a culture of fear because there's a provision in the law uh, that makes it a crime to aid or abet a pregnancy. Uh, and it actually... An abortion of a pregnancy or the ending of a pregnancy. Exactly. Excuse me. Uh, and it actually incentivizes any citizen to come forth with a suit uh, in exchange for a reward of up to $10,000 uh, if they denounce someone who has aided or abetted a pregnancy. And so what happened in Texas was that doctors were suddenly fearing those suits and they wondered, you know, gosh, what if the nurse who is working by my side decides to bring forth a suit? What if the patient is actually, you know, seeking uh, that $10,000 reward? And so that culture of fear, which I'm sure we'll expand on, uh, is central to the piece. And it was one of the uh, biggest effects of SB8. We're talking with Stephanie Taladrid. Stephanie was a 2023 Pulitzer Prize finalist for her reporting on the fall of Roe v. Wade. And her new piece in The New Yorker is called The Life of the Mother. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina King. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Anti-abortion rights activists hail the fall of Roe for saving unborn lives. But high-risk pregnancy is becoming even more perilous, reports The New Yorker, in a piece that tells the story of Jennifer Alvarez Estrada Glick, who died in Texas in July of 2022 from a pregnancy that became life-threatening. Because of Texas's abortion ban, Yenny was not asked if she wanted to terminate the pregnancy to save her life. That's one of the things that Stephania Taladrid tells us, a contributing writer for The New Yorker. The piece is called The Life of the Mother. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your reactions to what you're hearing? What are your questions about Yenny's story, about how Texas interprets its abortion ban or its abortion ban exceptions, about the effect that it is having on the state? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So unfortunately for Yenny, Texas's SB8 takes effect in September of 2021. She gets pregnant in December of 2021. She goes to the emergency room seven weeks in because of bleeding and breathing problems. She has to travel incredibly far to see an OB. And then, Stephanie, she has to go back in May, again, for very severe breathing problems. Can you tell us what happens when she goes back in May with these incredibly severe problems? Absolutely. Um, so one thing that we should mention about the ER in Luling is that because doctors there are unequipped to treat high-risk pregnancies, they often end up transferring patients to facilities with higher levels of care in places like Austin or Kyle, which we've already mentioned. And so what happened with Yenny the morning of May 9th was that she had woken in the middle of the of the night struggling to breathe. And this had been something that she had been experiencing for weeks. Um, she had been coughing persistently. She, was, she felt herself gasping for air. Uh, and, and now she could feel her heart racing because her oxygen levels were dropping. The problem was that um, her blood pressure was also dangerously high, uh, 205 over 129. Um, and who saw her in the ER decided that she immediately needed to be transferred to a facility with a higher level of care, but she needed to be stabilized first. And so, uh, you know, he was able to to bring her oxygen levels down, but her blood pressure was not responding to treatment. Uh, it was dropping, going back up, soaring, uh, and an x-ray was performed, and it revealed that Yeni had once again developed pulmonary edema. And so they first called a helicopter to come pick her up. Uh, there was bad weather that day, so that couldn't happen. And eventually an ambulance arrived in the early hours of the morning, and they took her to Ascension Seton Medical Center in Austin, which is part of the same hospital system uh, as Edgar B. Davis in, in Luling. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting. We had access to Yeni's medical records, and they show that upon admission in the Austin hospital, uh, she is deemed to be at high risk for clinical decompensation of death. And she was at that point 22 weeks into her pregnancy, almost 23 weeks. 
So the records explicitly say she is at high risk for death. At any point during the pregnancy, when she's seeing the doctor, the doctor in Kyle, for example, who is very concerned about her hypertension, and when she's in Austin and being treated, at any point is Yenny told about the risks the pregnancy is posing on her life and the option of what has been called a therapeutic abortion, an abortion that could save her life if if the pregnancy is terminated. Is it ever mentioned to her? At no point. And I think just for background, it's important to mention that very few women with the same conditions as Yenny, everything we've mentioned, right? Uh, a history of pulmonary edema, severe obesity, diabetes, hypertension, end up safely delivering healthy babies. Uh, the vast majority become so sick that it prompts a very difficult conversation with their doctors. And, and it raises an important question, which is, is this a pregnancy that you can safely continue? Um, we actually interviewed for the piece Dr. Al-Kayam, who is the director of the maternal cardiology program um, at the University of Southern California. And what he said was that in cases like these, the first question that you need to ask yourself is, what is the cause behind the pulmonary edema and can it be managed or even reversed? And he explained to us that pregnancy obviously increases the blood volume in women. And in a case like Yenny, who had limited cardiac reserves, the pressure from the heart is then reflected into the lungs, causing pulmonary edema and eventually heart failure. And his rule of thumb at USC is if, if, if a patient is, is fairly sick early on, you can only assume that as a pregnancy progresses and develops, things will only get worse and a termination lowers the risk of death in those cases. But at no point was this mentioned. And it was really interesting, Mina, because something that was mentioned was that, you know, her hypertension, her severe hypertension posed a serious risk to her health, her diabetes, her morbid obesity. Um, and we mentioned in the piece that at, there were times when, when Yenny wasn't taking her medications, either because she couldn't afford them or because they made her uh, dizzy and sick uh, and, 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 and they prevented her from, from, from going to work. And that was everywhere in the records. Um, this, this notion that she was non-compliant in the eyes of the doctors. And yet this question of, do you want to continue a pregnancy that is posing a high risk to your health was just never raised. Yeah. So you're saying that that maybe they're alluding to the fact that they feel Yenny bore responsibility for what ended up happening to her. But at the same time, regardless of whatever she's doing, if the life of the mother, as your piece is called, is at risk, there is supposed to be an exception that takes place. This listener writes, as doctors like to remind us, medicine is an art. These laws put doctors at risk when there is a gray area, so they're going to feel pressure to err on the side of putting women's health at risk. This will cause women to die when the general state of medicine still leaves much to be desired. These laws strip doctors' ability to use their best judgment in collaboration with their pregnant patients. So I want to ask you about that. 
What makes you think that the reason Yenny was not told about the option or offered the option of an abortion or of ending her pregnancy, what makes you think it's because of the abortion ban? I can't reveal my sources, uh, as you can imagine, uh, but we I can say that we have very solid sourcing on this. Um, again, we reviewed Leticia, Yanni's mother, requested the medical records. We received 3,000 pages, and at no point is that mentioned. And as you brought up at the beginning of the show, what's interesting about her case is that she got pregnant within months of SBA took effect and she died within days of Roe being overturned, right? So doctors were already having to navigate this climate of fear in Texas. And we have all seen the reports in the media of cases like Amanda Zorowski's, but Kate Cox as well, most recently in December, where doctors felt that their hands were tied and that they needed to wait for patients to get sicker before they could intervene. So in, in other words, in term, instead of preventing and treating the disease early on, they had to make sure that they, the condition that they were treating could qualify under one of the exceptions under, law, under the law. So you had people, medical professionals, involved in Yeni's care who admitted to you that they felt like the law made it tricky for them to raise the emergency flag and say, we should offer this person an abortion. You had people who actually were haunted by whether or not omitting that cost Jenny her life. Absolutely. And um, there was one person in particular who spoke about this climate of fear that we're re referring to. And that person said, one of the things that SBA does is it undermines a sense of common mission and trust, even within a caregiving team, right? So this idea that you can't even trust the nurses and the staff working around you. And, and it forces you to ask yourself, who's going to go behind your back and sue you because they watch you do your care? On July 10th, tell us how Yanni died. So on July 10th, and I think it's important to mention that she was released from the hospital in Austin uh, in May, within four days of her admission. And that is a really important detail because, and we'll, we, we go back to it at the end of the piece, we consulted with different experts who said that should not have happened, particularly considering that this woman came from a maternity care desert. Um, but in the morning of July 10th, her chronic symptoms intensified and she went through something similar than, than what she had experienced in, in May. She was with her husband at home and around 5 a.m. in the morning, they called an ambulance. They, the, when the paramedics arrived, they, they found her sitting in bed. She was feeling weak. She told them that she was feeling increasingly anxious as well. And again, her blood pressure was very, very high. 213 over 146. Um, her oxygen levels were falling, as the records show, and um, the paramedics made the decision to take her to the um, to to the hospital immediately. Um, it took her time to get dressed. She uh, 
she she was stumbling on her way to 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 the ambulance uh she she said that she needed to catch her breath uh and 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 she wasn't stable right um the paramedics did what 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 the doctor in the ER had done back in May they put her on oxygen and started her on an IV trying to stabilize her um but the problem is that acute pulmonary edema causes patients to panic and that happened in her case the the driver was about to to start the engine about to head to the hospital and and Yenion fastened her seat belts uh she couldn't breathe she 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 was feeling increasingly anxious as i said and she was eventually after almost two hours transferred to the hospital and what we know is that the same doctor who saw her in may was waiting for her with a small team um of medical professionals and um when they arrived no one left the ambulance so the paramedics didn't get out and so that caused the small team to wonder you know what had happened and it turned out that Yeni had no pulse at that point uh the paramedics they later found had been giving her CPR so the team in the ER room took over um and eventually they decided to perform was what is known as a perimortem C-section which is you try to deliver the baby uh which can not only improve the the, the chances of survival for the infant but also for the mother herself um they did that uh within a couple of minutes and when they delivered Yeni's baby Celine she was already dead mm. we're talking with Stephanie Atalladrid contributing writer for the New Yorker her latest piece for the magazine is called the life of the mother Stephanie was a 2023 Pulitzer Prize finalist for her reporting on the fall of Roe v Wade and you our listeners are weighing in with your reactions to what you're hearing your questions about Yeni's story about Texas's enforcement of its abortion ban, of its abortion ban, its exceptions, and how they're being interpreted, and so on. You can email them to forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. This listener writes, I am outraged at hearing this poor girl's story, and I can only imagine how many other women it represents. What can be done to remedy this crime against womanhood? I'm crying as I write this. So you you talked to four outside medical experts. They all reviewed Yenny's file. And I'm struck by how you report that all four said that Yenny's death was preventable, that had she been offered a therapeutic abortion and had she accepted it because it would have been her choice, it would probably have saved her life. But she was never really, she was never given the opportunity to make that choice at all. The other thing you note in the piece that I think this listener's comment is alluding to is that a question of whether Texas's abortion ban is actually driving maternal mortality rates in Texas. You 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 note that Texas's maternal death rate has more than doubled since 1999. So do you think there is a correlation there between the ban, or do the doctors you have spoken to think there's a correlation there between the ban and the rise in maternal death rates? Um, to your earlier point, Mina, there, there was a consensus among the doctors. And by the way, these are experts 
in their fields. Uh, the first person we quote in the piece is Joanne Stone, who uh, is the chair of the OBGYN department at uh, the School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And she was also the former president of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. And she literally told us if she weren't pregnant, she likely wouldn't be dead. And she went back to her stay in the hospital in Austin. And, and, and she said when she was well enough to, to be moved out of the ICU, where she spent about 24 hours, she should have been asked, do you want to continue this pregnancy now? knowing that because you already had the severe range blood pressure and pulmonary edema, your likelihood of getting sick is very, very high. And she explained what she would have done in a similar situation in New York. And she said, you know, in, in those cases, you have a consultation, you you have the neonatologist come in and, and, and the maternal fetal medicine specialist as well. And the patient obviously needs time to think about this decision because ending a pregnancy to save your own life is an excruciating decision for women. Um, but the problem is that in the legal landscape of Texas, you can't even start that discussion. Um, and and so Stone uh, was one of the experts that we that we interviewed. Uh, Thomas Trail, the director of um, of the cardiac clinic at Johns Hopkins. Uh, we had two doctors from outside of Texas, two doctors from Texas, so that we could get uh, as, as, as nuanced a perspective as we could from all of them. And to your point about maternal mortality rates, um, I think one of the challenges that we're up against is that the data will take time to gather. The mm -hmm. Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Review Committee in Texas is now reviewing data from 2020, and they will not get to data from 2022 until later this year at the at the earliest, right? So we're years away from getting a clear understanding of what these laws are doing to women's lives. But that is why telling these stories and finding these stories is so important. And we will have more on this story in another case that's making national headlines out of Texas after the break. We're talking with Stephanie Ataladrid of The New Yorker, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Stephanie Atalidra this hour, contributing writer for The New Yorker, whose latest piece for the magazine is The Life of the Mother. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your reflections on what you're hearing about the story of Jennifer Alvarez Estrada Glick about abortion bans that say they make exceptions for the life of the mother, medical emergencies, when abortions are medically necessary. You can join us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on our social channels on Instagram, on Discord, on X, or you can call us at 866-733-6786. Stephanie, Yenny was denied an abortion by not being offered it by medical professionals, even when her life was at risk, even as she faced medical emergency after medical emergency. There is another case from Texas where a woman was actually told by her doctor she should have an abortion. So this doctor took the risk of offering that and saying that that is what they deem medically appropriate here, medically necessary here. And that, of course, is the case of Kate Cox, and that story has made national headlines. Can you remind us why that doctor said that? What happened in the weeks after Kate Cox became pregnant? What did Kate learn about the baby that she wanted to have? Absolutely. And I think that maybe it would be helpful just to remind readers uh, listeners, I'm sorry, I'm just so so used to talking about <laughs> no readers, um, of the legal landscape, right? Because so much of our discussion has focused on SB8 that we need to make clear that since the overturning of Roe, uh, two other laws, even stricter than SB8, have taken effect in Texas. Yes. Uh, With harsher elsewhere. penalties, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So we on now doctors. have an, outri- an outright abortion ban that is, by the way, rooted in the 1800s, uh, which permits abortions only for the purposes of saving the life of the mother. And there's also a trigger law, which declared that um, performing an abortion when a woman is not at risk of death or threatened with what the law states is a a substantial impairment of a major bodily function is punishable by up to life in prison. So in Texas, a doctor who performs an abortion is now subject to a felony charge. And they can face a fine of up to $100,000 and up to 99 years in prison. So what a lot of doctors have told me is that they're in a situation now where it's their own livelihood or their patients. And what's so problematic about this language, about the language in the law, is that it, it, it pretty much presumes medicine to be a science of extremes. And as if we lived in a world where uh, women are either faced with or being saved from death, uh, while everything in between gets alighted. Um, And in the case of of Kate Cox, uh, her baby developed trisomy 18, which is a severe genetic condition. Uh, Most babies with this condition will die before or shortly after being born. And in her case, her doctor told her that her baby would survive at least, at most a week uh, after the birth. And Kate didn't want to go through that. Kate didn't want her baby to suffer. And she reached out to the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is representing Amanda Zurowski and some of the other women and plaintiffs that we alluded to at the beginning of the conversation. and. What they did was um, they sought, uh, they, 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 they asked a district court uh, to grant 
um, an order that would allow Kate to get an abortion in Texas and to make sure that both her doctor and her husband would be protected by that court order. Because remember, I mean, we've talked a lot about husband, uh, about doctors, but the husband in this case, if Kate's husband drove her to an abortion clinic under SBA because he's aiding or abetting an abortion, he could be liable too. Yeah. So that that is what, what led up to the case. Yeah, and I want to add, like, not only did she not want to carry to term a baby that could die within hours to up to a week, but that she was also experiencing pregnancy complications that was sending her to the ER. It sent her to the ER three times, and her doctor was saying to preserve her health and her own future fertility, she should also get this abortion. So so the lower court grants this, right? The lower court does say, yes, you have permission to have this abortion. Exactly. And your doctor and husband are protected. Yes. Exactly. And, and just mean that. Um, yeah. Can, go ahead. Sorry. No. On on the point about her her own health, that's absolutely right. I mean, this was a this is a woman who who was already a mother, who was already a mother. She has two children. She had had two prior C sections, so she was um, at increased risk of infection, uterine rupture, and and absolutely, this was uh, also something that. That, that would prevent further damage to, to her health. And so after the district court grants the order and says, yes, you are entitled to an abortion, um, the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, does two things. He, number one, he sends a letter to the hospitals where Kate's doctor has admitting privileges, warning them that they could be prosecuted if they offered her an abortion. And number two, he filed an appeal with the state Supreme Court that eventually put a hold on the case. So he just disagrees with this lower court, and the Texas Attorney General decides to step in to stop Kate from getting this abortion. In the middle of a medical emergency, by the way. In the middle of it, right. And that was another issue. Like they were, in the the Zorowski case, as you mentioned, they they were questioning whether some of the people who were saying they didn't get the medical care they needed had standing because they weren't currently pregnant anymore and going Mm -hmm. through this. So you actually do finally have a plaintiff who is currently pregnant going through this emergency who's willing to put herself under the strain of filing a court case to figure out whether or not she can have permission to get this abortion. Um in the place that she's familiar with, with the doctor that she knows. And so Texas goes so far as to intervene to stop this. What does the Texas Supreme Court decide? So they took about three days, if I'm not mistaken, to issue their ruling, again, in the middle of a medical emergency where this woman has, in addition to going through this incredibly complicated situation, has decided to go public with her story. Um, and eventually what the court decides is that they overturn the district court's ruling. Um, and in essence, their argument was that she wasn't sick enough to receive an abortion. Yeah. Kate says in a CBS interview that she was shocked that the state of Texas wanted her to continue a pregnancy where she'd have to wait till the baby dies in my belly, she says, or at birth and put my own health at risk and a future pregnancy at risk. She eventually goes out of state to be able to get the abortion, but she also makes another point that I think is important, which is that she says leaving the state to have an abortion, she sheds light on what a burden that is in itself. I want to play Mm -hmm. this cut here of her on CBS. I wanted to be here, close to home. I mean, it's the hardest thing I've been through. 
wanted to come home, cry on my own pillow, hold my babies, be near my doctors. So I was really hopeful. That's, yeah. that's really what I thought about most um, going yeah. into this. I think one of the things that people say, you know, is, well, we've left it up to the states and you can go out of state to be able to do it. But I think what she is sharing here is it's not as easy as you might think. Right. I mean, Texas is her home state, but also, you know, it 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 takes time. It takes money to be able to do what she did. Uh, not every woman is in that position. Um Last two years ago, when when Roe was overturned, um, I spent some time at, at an abortion clinic in New Mexico, and and did a piece about a teenager, a thirteen year old from Dallas, who traveled with her family uh, to get an abortion in New Mexico. And I remember in the days that I was there, I got to meet a lot of women, most of them who were already mothers, by the way, and had made the difficult decision to end their pregnancies. In most cases, it was a financial decision. And I couldn't help but wonder, who am I not seeing here? And who isn't making it to the clinics? Who doesn't know what the Center for Reproductive Rights is? And who isn't able to challenge the state of Texas in court? And I think those stories, which are invisible to many people, Yes. Ought to be told. Well, Emily writes, I'm an OBGYN myself. When will the issue of medical malpractice come up? The Texas law makes it clear that frank medical malpractice isn't an issue for doctors caring for pregnant women. It is outrageous. Do you think there's any chance that in Yeni's case, their omission of the option of an abortion is something that they could be sued for for medical malpractice? I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's a question that only a lawyer uh, with an expertise in medical malpractice can can answer. Um, I do want to emphasize that I think doctors are faced with an impossible predicament. Again, this idea that it's it's their livelihood or their patients, right? And so, and I think it's easy for us in states where abortion is legal to look at what happens in these cases and say, why not take the risk? Why not offer an abortion? Why not save her life? But when you're faced with the threat of civil liability, when you could end up in jail, lose your own license, and face a fine of up to $100,000, I think the calculus is very different. Noel on Discord writes, this exposes the shambles the healthcare system is for poor people. Yeni could not get appropriate medical care even before her pregnancy. It's easier for the system to disregard patients like Yeni. At least Kate Cox had good medical care and used her privilege to sue the attorney general and was able to flee Texas to get an abortion. I don't know that she sued the attorney general, but yes, she sued, she tried to get um, permission to be able to have this abortion. You were alluding to this a little bit. I don't know if there's more that you want to say about this, about how, about how these issues have played out between Kate and Yeni in very different ways. I mean, what I can only say is that when Roe v. Wade was overturned, we knew who will be the women most affected by this. Yes. We knew that it would be minority women, poor women, uninsured women, and Yeni fit all of those criteria. And so again, 
this was, I can't stress just how difficult the reporting on this piece was. Um, mm. But, and it takes time to get to these stories. And I am just in awe of what Leticia, her mother, decided to do. Because again, I think that coming out with a story like this is a very brave thing to do. And we tell ourselves, you know, there are many ways in which these families could seek accountability and seek justice, but oftentimes they're still grieving and they're, they, they, they just experience something unimaginable to most of us. And the last thing they're thinking about is filing a suit or talking to the press about it. And I was, I was struck by, you know, you, you referred to the interview with Kate Cox. She said something in that interview, which was, there's no outcome where I get to take my baby home. And when I met Leticia, she said something similar. She said, there's no outcome now where I get my daughter back. And so I think we need to keep those two realities in mind as we, as these stories continue to come, come up and, and the public becomes familiarized with, with them, the, the unimaginable trauma that these women, these mothers, these Texans are going through. Let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Is what we are hearing from these stories in Texas playing out across the country? Do you think these cases tell us and reflect the post-Roe landscape not just in Texas, but in other states? Absolutely. No question. Um, you know, the overturning of Roe triggered uh, abortion restrictions in many states across the country. You have places like Idaho, places like Missouri, where performing an abortion in pretty much all circumstances is now classified as a felony for which a doctor can face years in prison, the loss of a medical license, and a steep fine. Um, again, we don't have the full data yet, but we know that the U.S. already has incredibly high maternal mortality rates. It's one of the few countries where maternal deaths have increased in the past two decades. And what we know from people who have been studying the, this for years um, and, and, and estimated what the impact of the court's decision could be is that there will be a surge in maternal deaths and one that will disproportionately affect women of color. What has been the reaction to your piece? It came out January 8th. Um, we also, of course, concurrently have this Kate Cox case. Do you see that it is having an effect in the sense of making people rethink abortion bans, a change of course in Texas or other states? I hope so. <laughs> you can only hope that as a writer. Um, what I will say is that I think there's still a great deal of ignorance, misunderstanding about what it is that abortion bans do. Um, a lot of people still think that it affects only women seeking a quote-unquote elective abortion. And I think it's important for the public at large to, to recognize that if you're diagnosed with cancer mid-pregnancy in a state like Texas, that your doctors might 
think twice about offering radiology or chemotherapy treatment. If you experience something like a premature rupture of membrane, if you have a high-risk pregnancy like Yeni's, people are carefully considering whether to offer life-saving care or not. And so mm. I, I think we, we really need to understand that in terms of the broad effect and the broad impact that the bans are having and that women are dying as a result. Yeah. Andrea has a clarifying question. Andrea writes, I'm a maternal fetal specialist at 31 weeks. Jenny could, should have delivered, either being induced for vaginal delivery or by cesarean, and the baby sent to the neonatal intensive care unit. Survival is excellent at 31 weeks for babies, delivered in good condition in a proper hospital setting. It sounds like mom died first, which is super horrible for all sorts of maternal medical conditions. We have to recommend preterm delivery as a matter of regular practice. This is not illegal in Texas either. You do talk about this a little bit and the the fact that they could have turned to trying to save the fetus, but they were literally not in a very good hospital setting, right? They're in this ambulance. And you also note that the doctor stayed with Yeni too long. Is that what a lot of the medical experts said before turning to try to save the baby? You know, it's it's hard and to judge. we just have 30 seconds. And yeah, it, I think it's, it's just hard to judge what, what the doctor did that morning. This was a specialist in emergency medicine, not, not an obstetrician or a maternal fetal expert. So again, I think we just, we should just remember that these doctors are placed uh, and faced with an impossible predicament. But yes, it's true that, that early delivery would have been an option in her case that wasn't raised. I am struck by the fact that the medical record shows how her hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and so on are being really called out as the reason that she died. Also, you know, that she was non-compliant, as you say. But the autopsy report says that a contributing factor very plainly in her death was pregnancy. Right, Stephania? Yeah, it literally states pregnancy creates stress on the heart and can exacerbate underlying heart disease and cause hypertensive crises, which is exactly what happened to her. Yeah, and it contributed to her death. Well, Stephanie, thank you for bringing us Yeni's story. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. My thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.